we get to look at the subject of the book of Nahum. And this might be one of the least interesting to you. It might be the most fascinating to you. I don't know. Uh, I think it's going to be maybe one of the other as far as the 12 of the prophets that we've read so far. The book of Nahum comes to us very much as a sequel. A sequel to another book in the 12 prophets. And that's the book of Jonah. So in the book of Jonah, you remember Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is not Jewish. They're not Israelite. They're pagan. And he tells them to repent, and they do. And that's what Jonah does. And then he distresses over it and doesn't like it. He was probably the, one of the worst evangelists of all time. So if you've ever found yourself in such a situation, I have. I have, um, you know, there's some situations where I feel discouraged, and I, I remember having one or two people in my life where I thought, you know, there's no way they're going to convert or become a Christian. All they're trying to do is bum money off of me and go buy drugs, and then come to find out later, they become very devout Christians, and they were very sincere, and they repent completely, and I was wrong. So uh, I can relate to Jonah on that. I don't know if a lot of people can, but I do. Uh, but anyways, after a century after Jonah has called Nineveh to repentance, now God is calling his justice against them. They have gone too far. And they're not coming back this time. And God knows that. And he calls them out. So if you want to remember what Nahum was about, I used the word, the, the letter N right there. And I think of, as far as alliteration, Nineveh. And God's justice and judgment against Nineveh. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 10 that there's a man named Nimrod. And history is known as Ninus who set up the city of Nineveh. There's some interesting things about Nineveh. Since the time of Jonah... The city of Nineveh has begun worshiping a goddess named Ishtar. We might also know Ishtar as Easter. Ishtar inv involves worship via prostitutes, which many of the pagan religions did, and witches doing spells and all kinds of things. These figures within this religion were very oppressive, especially, especially in Assyria. Assyria was an atrocious empire. They were violent and cruel. They would be comparable to the violence that we see among nations in the 20th century. Those that are involved in World War II and after that. Those who were atheistic, communistic, even imperial. They took on these, these qualities of very evil, wicked nations. And God calls justice upon them. And Nahum is the one that declares it. I ask you a question tonight, is knowing that justice is done important to you? I think, I, I don't know how you feel, but I think for most men, when we see injustice done, we feel compelled that that needs to be brought to an end. And we want to know that justice comes. Now, we might say, well, you can't do anything. You can't undo what has happened to somebody else. But we definitely want to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else. I, I encourage someone, people who who have been abused, who've come to me and said, listen, this is what's happened to me. And I said, you got to report it. And they're like, no, I'm too ashamed of it. I said, it might not be for you to report it. It's for you to stop that individual from doing it to others because they will. Um, I don't usually take questions at this time. But maybe we'll turn this into a class soon. But we'll take some comments afterwards. I'm very happy to stand in the lobby and talk another hour if my wife lets me. 
on this subject. But we see justice taking place here in the book of Nahum. Look at, look at this description here. Nahum chapter 1, you see exactly the description of God, Jehovah God. And it says right here, the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D tells you that the Hebrew word is Jehovah or Yahweh. And it says that the Lord is jealous. The Hebrew word, as I recall, is kana, meaning he is zealous. I think that's a better translation. He is zealous. Uh, jealous tends to take on more of an, in, of an envious kind of meaning to it. And I think some translation of that is, is not the best. But anyways, the Lord is a zealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, those who are doing evil and are wicked. The Lord takes vengeance on them, and it says and he keeps wrath for his enemies. And again, his enemies is not just something he makes up. The enemies are those who are evil and wicked. This is not an arbitrary, God says, you know, I don't like the way that... Um, your people walk or how they look. It's not anything like that. It's because this nation of Assyria is so wicked and the city of Nineveh has judgment declared against them. It says here, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. You know, there it is again. I, I, I emphasize this every week when I see it. Almost every single book, prophetic book we've come across, we see this, these descriptions of God, that of, of His anger... And his wrath, but we also see, most importantly, he's slow to anger. He's merciful. But then he will by no means clear the guilty. Where does that come from? Exodus 34, 6-7. The same passage that is echoed from Moses throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. I'm going to continue to emphasize that because I know we're going to come across it and see it again. A very important passage there for you to understand, to look at. And it's stressed by Israel throughout all the scriptures is to know who your God is. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. You imagine a father that was all justice and, all, and no love, we would say, well, that would not be a pleasant home. Or what if he was a loving father, but he had no justice? He allowed things to go on that shouldn't happen. Again, we don't want that either. We want leadership that is balanced. Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, we read, The Lord, that's Yahweh, is good. He is good. And you can rely on Him. And you can rely on Him for justice. He is a stronghold. He is a fortress. He is a place of shielding yourself, a place of protection. So it says here, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Amen. He is. Whatever distresses you're going through, you can say, I can rely and trust in Him and take refuge in Him. He knows those who take refuge in Him, but with an overflowing flood. Now I'm going to emphasize the word flood here. It's very interesting. Nineveh had the Tigris River going through it. The city was built around the Tigris River. It had gates that opened within it. And the idea of the flood is what, what we do know from history. It appears that the city, the gates were opened but the city also, its walls collapse from its own rivers, its own water. Uh, there's another river nearby, and I've seen different commentators. They, they're not quite sure if that river flowed through or just nearby, but we do know the Tigris was going through this city. So God is a refuge, and He is an overwhelming flood. He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. They won't escape His wrath. This city of Nineveh and their wickedness, they will not escape God's justice. 
You know, and I think that's to be reminded of today. When you see injustices on the news and you, you see one person do this against another person and you might wonder, are they going to ever catch that guy? You know, they never found the murderer. I know this, God's going to bring justice. And I think some people will say, yeah, well, that's, that's in the next life he'll bring justice. That's true. But what I read in the scriptures is that he will bring justice now in this life as well. That person will leave, live a desperate life, a depraved life, one that, um, you know, only God knows whether they'll change or not. But it is, it is something that we would not want the life of someone who is that wicked, who would hurt those who are innocent or, or murder others or to take the property of, of others. But who wants to face justice for their moral failings? You know, that's another thing. When I read these books and I read the book of Nahum, I think about me. It's not just me pointing the finger, look at all the finger at everybody else, look how wicked they are. I think about, well, okay, this is God's justice. What about me? I've done things that are wrong. I've said things I shouldn't have said. I've thought things I shouldn't have thought. What is God going to do with me? I think that's something to think about tonight. So we look at God's vengeance. We're going to reflect a little bit more on that. I don't think we're going to get as involved personally, but we will look a little bit at ourselves as well as we think about God um, doing what is right and bringing about his just wrath. So what do the faithful want to hear? What do you want to hear in a time, in hard times and in distress and in trials? You know, I want to hear, I want to hear good news. And I like Nahum 1 verse 15. It sounds like Isaiah 52 and verse 7. And you've heard it before, whether you realize it or not, because Isaiah 52 is quoted in the book of Romans. And here it is. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And you've heard that. You might have heard the description a little bit fuller in Isaiah and in Romans. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You've heard that before. That's why we think about the putting on the panoply of God, the armor of God. We read about in Ephesians chapter 6. And we think about our feet being shod with the gospel. And I think, yes, that's why our feet are beautiful. Because we carry the gospel with them. We take it with us. So behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. That seems to be very prophetic. We know that Israel and Judah commit sins. In fact, 50 years from this point, about this time, in 586, Babylon's going to come and completely take Jerusalem. The Assyrians have already taken off and they're going to take away in this period of time, in the 7th century. They take away northern Israel and they're going to take away a number of cities like the city of Lachish that Sennacherib has, an, has a depiction of in one of his palaces as it's been uncovered, um, who was the king of Assyria. These were very wicked and cruel people. They killed children, and the Assyrians would specifically focus on even pregnant women. I'm not going to get into descriptions of the atrocities that they committed, but here you have a declaration that, listen, there's peace coming, the gospel's coming, and there's coming a time when God's people, you won't have the worthless pass through them. When will that happen? And I think we see that. We see it in the sense in the church. We're going to see it in the greater sense in which we live in the eternal kingdom. 
You know, if you live a wicked life, are you still in the church? You know, we can have discussion on that, whether that person, yes, someone can be committing a sin and be a brother in Christ, uh, but are they really a part of the body? God says he wants a holy people. Let's think a little bit further here as we think about this. So there's good news coming, but Nahum still focuses on this justice is coming upon Nineveh. Nahum's name means comfort and consolation. His name is a shortened form of the name Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to come later after they come out of Babylonian exile, the Jews do, and they resettle the land. And again, Nehemiah is a very comforting individual. Nahum's writing in the 7th century B.C. Assyria and Nineveh has gone from their repentant state in the 8th century when Jonah preached to them. Now they are wicked and depraved and worshiping the god goddess Ishtar and doing very wicked things. The fall of Nineveh is meant to comfort the faithful. To comfort us because God is a just God. That these people who are doing wicked will not continue on without being stopped. God will bring it to an end. So God warned Nineveh as those uh, who plot against him. Let me rephrase that. Uh, God is warning this city because he says, what you're doing is directly against me. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of Genesis chapter 9, where God declares, and he says, there will be a reckoning for anyone who sheds the blood of man, who sheds that life within them. Why? Why does he say there's going to be a reckoning? Because we're made in the image of God. When someone murders another or abuses somebody else who's made in his image, God takes it as a personal offense. And you see that in the book of Nahum. The Lord promises to restore Israel and to relieve them. This is a part of those blessings. Yes, justice is coming. I'm going to restore you. Great times are coming for Israel. You don't get away from that throughout the prophets. And so on one hand, you've got God's justice. On the other hand, you have God's love and compassion for his people. We read in Nahum chapter 1 verses 12 through 13. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. And you might be thinking, does that, does that give you comfort? It does when you hear that the wicked are coming to an end. And so Nahum pictures this. He gives a picture of what it looks like to be in a battle. But this is with God. And God is going to win. Though they are at full strength. And it's true. You remember the Assyrians with Sennacherib came up to the walls of Jerusalem. That's going to happen um, in this time period, in the time period of Hezekiah. And in a night, the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 of them in one night. 185,000 of these most elite troops. And here you have that description here. Though they are full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Now he's talking to Israel and Judah. You're feeling the oppression of Assyria. I've allowed it because of your sins. And you remember uh, Israel had been practicing idolatry and doing very wicked and evil things. And because of that, God allowed this, this nation to oppress them. We think about it a little bit further, and the Lord talks about restoring majesty. Look at Nahum 2, verses 1 through 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle. Collect all your strength, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Now again, Israel's still being taken off into captivity. 
Jew, the Jews, Judah is being taken off into captivity. A few decades after this. But God still says to them, you be ready. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you to majesty. The implication there is, I'm bringing you a king. Now, when they come out and the Jews come out in Judah and some of Israel come back and they're restored as a nation, they didn't have kings. They had governors. Then they had priests who were leaders. They had different leaders uh, throughout this period of time. They didn't have a king. Until we get to the New Testament and we see that the king comes. Jesus. But a century again after the city of Nineveh repented from Jonah's preaching, they rebel against God. They do evil. You know, as I think about the book of Nineveh, I think about that. One of the passages that came out to my mind as I was reading it was Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's fascinating scripture to read in Hebrews chapter 10. And this is where I, when I read that, I'm thinking, well, that is not just for, that's not just for wicked people. This, the writer of Hebrews is addressing all people and warning them. It is a fearful thing if you willfully live in sin. So I think about that. Look here in Nahum, and I know we talked about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here you have a description of the Assyrians as lions. Why? Because that was their main symbol. They put it up on their gates. They had lions. They would also put wings on them as representing them. And so people knew what Nahum meant here as, as God is speaking through him. Nahum 2, verses 10 through 12 says, Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. There is fear to come. Because God is coming. Where is the lion's den? In other words, where is this place, you lions, where you felt protected, where you thought you were, the, you were stronger than anybody else? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. He's saying the place where you thought you had safety, you won't have it. Nineveh's going to fall. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Again, the symbolism of the Assyrians taking and conquering. But God brings judgment on them for their wickedness. The Lord is against evil. You know, as we just read there, justice is often uncomfortable. It's disturbing. You, you remember at some point in your life, probably in your childhood, you've done something wrong and somebody finds out about it. You feel fearful. You tremble about it. Uh, is this going to come back on me? What are my parents going to think? I don't want anybody to hear what I've done. But it's very unsettling here. We read in Nahum chapter 2 and verse 13, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. He carries that image of the lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. It's interesting what happens to Nineveh and I'm going to show you a little bit in a minute. It wasn't until the 1840s that Nineveh was rediscovered. You know what critics said about the Bible? This is another one of those where they said, oh the Bible made up the city of Nineveh. It didn't really exist. This didn't ever exist. And then Digging around in northern Iraq, where Mosul is today, they find it. And we continue to see that. People say, oh, the Bible's wrong about this or that. This place didn't exist. The Hittites didn't exist. These people didn't exist. And as time goes on, 
the Bible continues to be reaffirmed. We have a description here of the city of Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city. And I want you to listen to this because it sounds very familiar. I've already given you a clue up there where I think it sounds familiar and what it sounds like. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. There's those pictures that Naomi keeps giving you of a battle. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deceit and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. What is he saying? And the end is coming to this bloody city because she is a prostitute. She is deceiving people and taking advantage of them and doing wicked things. The battle has come to her, Nahum chapter 3. It reminds me of Revelation 17, where Rome is called the harlot city and is brought to an end. That's a very vivid picture right there as you read that. You can see the conflict, the battle. You can understand the wickedness among them. As I noted before, it's in the InterVarsity publication, the Biblical Background Commentary, notes that Assyria and Nineveh had become a place where they would oppress people and they used their religion to do this. Their belief and their worship of the goddess Ishtar or Easter. The witches and the harlots, the women led this worship. Very fascinating, strange thing. So we get a little bit further in Nahum. This is one thing that stands out to me that is very intriguing. In the book of Nahum, Nahum reminds Nineveh and he says to them, listen, you remember the fall of Thebes? Depending on what translation you have there in Nahum. Nohaman is also another way it's translated for Thebes. The city of Thebes in Egypt, you conquered it and you destroyed it. Even though they had neighbors around them, they had people to support them, they seemed to be right next to the water, just like you are. They were right next to the Nile. They thought they were safe, and yet you conquered them. And guess what's going to happen to you? So Thebes falls in 663 to the Assyrians. This is what we read in Nahum 3, 8 through 9. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? That sounds like Nineveh too. Her rampart, a sea, and water her wall. That sounds very similar to Nineveh. Cush was her strength. They had that support from other nations. Egypt too, and that without limit put, and the Libyans were her helpers. There's no reason. Nobody, everybody thought there's no way Thebes can fall, but they did. So Nineveh also fell to Nabopolassar. That's the father of Nebuchadnezzar. And it fell in 612 B.C., just 50 years later. They didn't learn their lesson. They didn't continue in the repentance that had been preached to them through, through Jonah. What happened to Nineveh? Their leaders became wicked. As we finish up the book of Nineveh, look here at the last few verses, 18 through 19. It was your leaders, your shepherds, are asleep, O king of Assyria. I think there's much application, application to this today. In our own country, in our own community, in our own state, where are our leaders? Are they asleep? He says, your shepherds are, are asleep, O king of Assyria. It's you. Your nobles slumber. 
Your people are scattered in the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. You're dying, you say. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. There's rejoicing over your fall. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? They were against everybody. And they warred against everybody. Nahum 3.8 says that the city of Nineveh would be hidden. It does become hidden, like I mentioned before. Not until later in A.D. 1846 is it rediscovered. The Assyrian Empire, just soon after this, after the fall of Nineveh, is brought to an abrupt end. It never exists again in any other form. God said that it would end, and it did. It was gone. The point of the book of Nahum is this, is that God works his, his justice among the nations. He does this today. But I think he does it even more so today and with a little bit more mercy because there are Christians throughout the world in every nation. And I think he works it in different ways. And I think we should look by faith and trust in our creator that he will bring justice when wicked leaders and civil leaders do evil. But I think at the same time we need to reflect upon ourselves. If the guilty in the world cannot escape God's wrath and his justice, what about us? Who can save us? We need a savior. I'll finish with this for our invitation. Romans chapter 5, 8 through 9. Listen to what Paul says. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he still loved us so that Christ died for us. For since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We're saved from the just wrath through Jesus Christ. His blood makes atonement. How will you escape the justice of God? We all know that we're guilty of sin. When we rebel against God, what can we do but to seek to, to be reconciled to Him? The only way that we can do that is through one who can plead our case and mediate for us, our advocate, Jesus Christ, who stands at the right hand of God. Tonight, if you haven't made Christ your Savior by becoming a Christian and being baptized and rising in the newness of life, do that. If you need to make things right, we want to pray with you and encourage you. We encourage you to come now as we stand and we sing.